Several months ago, I got a call from Richard Culpepper uh, saying that um, he was speaking over in a Methodist church here in our city. We hadn't seen each other for a long while, so I wanted to go and uh, renew some of the acquaintances that we'd had of the past, find out what was going on. And uh, we got over there. I, Richard was speaking. I'd heard his testimony many times. I knew it well. And uh, uh, they were telling us a little bit about the uh, a ministry that they're in. It's called International Leadership Institute. It's impressive to hear about that. They've been involved in 108 different countries, and they have trained over 200,000 people, not just bringing them to Christ, not just bringing them to maturity in Christ, but people who are trained to give leadership to others. So you can imagine what kind of impact that is really making on our world. And then this lady named Joy Griffin was introduced to give her testimony. And folks, I want to tell you. God was all over that testimony. I've been in Christian ministry, I believe, 64 years now. I've heard hundreds of testimonies, some of them extremely meaningful and good. But I believe that of all those testimonies I've heard through my Christian lifetime, that this is the most powerful I've ever heard. So let's give a good Edgewood welcome to Joy Griffin. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Mr. Richard. Thank you, Brother David. And thank you all for letting me be here. I'm very privileged to have the invitation from Brother David and from your uh, senior pastor, Andy Merritt. Uh, it is pure privilege and an honor to be able to be with y'all today. I um, have known about Edgewood actually before I got to know Brother David and, and any of you that are here. Uh, my husband and I had uh, just gotten married and we were serving. He was pastoring up in Forsyth, Georgia. And we knew about Edgewood um, in particular for your pregnancy center uh, ministry because we actually began a pregnancy center there for Monroe County. There was nothing within the range of just a lot of miles, several counties uh, where we were serving just in a small church there. And you all helped to birth that ministry. And that's just one I know of countless ministries that you're involved in. Um, I'm excited about your love indeed because I know that you serve right here locally in this community, this county, as well as all around the world. So thank you for what y'all are doing um, for Jesus. It's a privilege for me, too, because I heard all about you um, then a few years later because of your friends and mine, Richard and Patty Culpepper, who lived here in Columbus, and this was their home church. And then now they actually live in Carrollton, Georgia, which is my home uh, town, and that's how I've gotten to know them that they are just a dear brother and sister to me and the Lord. And they've shared with me that as many of you here, I've seen y'all hugging and, and, and joining together, getting to uh, 
have like a little reunion here. Thank you for your impact and investment in their lives and y'all all growing and being nurtured together by Brother David. I know that is what has happened. And I want to tell you that they are, um, Jesus is using them not just in Carroll County, but all over the world. They've been, we've been in Africa before and I've watched them be incredible missionaries there. So I want to say thank you um, um, for, for what you mean to them because that has uh, clearly impacted my life. And I'm so, so thankful. So, um, I want to just share scripture with us this morning from Acts chapter 3, if you've got the word and want to look, uh, follow along. But it's going to be a familiar passage to you. Acts chapter 3. I'm going to read just the first 10 verses of that chapter for us. Um, Acts 3, beginning with 1. Now, Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. Now, I want to tell you a couple of things there. Verse 2 says that this man had been lame, crippled, never been able to walk from the time he came out of his mama's womb. It doesn't tell us how old he is here, but if you flip over into chapter 4, the next chapter tells you. The Bible says this man was more than 40 years old. More than 40, and he's never taken a step. And so they take him out in front of the, the um, sort of, we would say, maybe the church. Now, I did not know until I was in Israel a few years ago that the beautiful gate, I asked the people there in, in Jerusalem, I said, you know, the Bible talks about the beautiful gate. And, and around the walls of the city, there's different gates. The, the names are there like the Zion Gate, the Dung Gate. There's others. And we, we know, or I'm sure we all have thought about the Eastern Gate. There's songs about the Eastern Gate when Jesus comes back and we go in the Eastern Gate. So, so I said, what is the, where is the beautiful gate? And they said that the beautiful gate... And and the eastern gate are the same. So that helped me just mentally to know where this man was. So they carried him outside the temple, out, outside, and just laid him sort of like on the porch maybe of the, of the church uh, uh, steps. And he was a beggar. Asking alms means that he didn't have money. And so he was holding out his hand, hoping people would give him some quarters or dollar, give something to him. Verse 3, who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asking alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed to them, expecting to receive something from them. Verse 6, Then Peter said this. I learned this in vacation Bible school and Sunday school. Your children might even be singing this little song now in children's church. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Peter says, we don't have any money. But, but remember, they've just been filled with the Holy Spirit in chapter 2. Pentecost has just happened. So they're saying, in the name of Jesus, not our power, but in Jesus' power, rise and walk. Verse 7, and they took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately, I love that word, immediately, right then and there, his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he leaping up stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people around saw him walking and praising God. Verse 10, and they all knew. Everybody knew he was the crippled man. They knew that it was him who had sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. Now, that's a big praise and a miracle story out of the Bible. And, and the reason that I shared that passage is because something similar to that happened to me in my life. 
But I need to give you some background before we get to that point. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I'm from up in Carroll County. I grew up out in, the, in a rural part of the county over near the Alabama line uh, on a dairy farm. My mom and daddy milked cows for a living. And um, I was thinking, I know that Columbus is known for Connect dairies. We, because we live closer to Atlanta, their contract, you know, to sell the milk to was Atlanta dairies. But if we'd lived here, I'm sure that it sold it to Connect. But um, I grew up in a tiny Methodist church church out in the country. We literally lived one mile from the Methodist church and a little Baptist church. So we actually were at different places all the time. If there was a revival going on or a special singing or um, a Bible school, we, we went back and forth. But we were members of the Methodist church. And I'm so thankful for being raised by godly parents who, because I don't remember not knowing Jesus loves me, this I know, or John 3, 16. And all of us can't say that, but I'm so thankful um, for that upbringing. But I actually was 12 years old before I personally, just in a real relationship with Jesus, confessed my sins, asked Jesus to forgive me, and I was saved when I was 12. And, and that was, you know, eternally important in my life. But then as I grew as a teenager, you know, I'm about then starting into junior high, high school, and even on through college, I really wanted to grow in the Word. And so I was always at youth fellowship. I was, I was at, at everything the church offered. I went off to all the different retreats. You know, we would come back from a youth retreat, and the pastor would, would let us all stand up and share what had happened. So my friends and I would, I would do the same as people did. Others would say, oh, I just love Jesus, and I give him the praise for what happened, and we just glorify him, and we sang all the praise songs. And I said the same thing the other people did. But then I began to get convicted when I would get home. I thought, I said those things. And we sing all those songs, all the hymns at church. But that's not, I don't know if that's very real in my heart. And so I'd be reading my Bible. And I got more and more convicted from reading the Word. Even though I'd asked Jesus in my heart those years before. But, but here's a few examples. When I read, remember Jesus is hanging on the cross? And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I thought, deep in my heart, I don't forgive people that way. I mean, you would not know that. I would be sweet to you on the outside. But, but what, if, what if Patty, uh, we, I played basketball. What if Patty or somebody had blocked an important shot, you know, that was for a big game? In my heart, I kind of held a grudge against her. I didn't like her so much because she messed up my, my points there. And maybe that's not a big deal to other people, but God was convicting me of that. And, you know, he says to love him with all your heart, mind, and soul. And I thought, you know, I know what it means to love my mom and daddy and brother. I can touch and feel them. But I say I love Jesus. We sing those songs. But, but I don't, what does that really mean to love him? And he says you can have a peace that passes all understanding. And my heart was getting more and more unpeaceful. So, so I thought, well, maybe I can go and just ask the preacher, you know, what to do. Now, I did not have a pastor at the time the way that you have here. You're very blessed. I went to this guy and I said, I just need more of God. My heart is not like the Bible. And do you know what this guy said? Now, now I know why. And I'm going to explain to you later why this guy said what he did. <laughs> I didn't understand at the time. He patted me on the back and said, oh, Joy, you're the best person that we know. And I was good. I was good. I was a good student. I was a good athlete. I was, I was good morally. I, you know, I did the right things. I went and saw the people in the hospital and I helped my mama go take food to the people around us that were sick. You know, I did good things. But he said, you, you, you're so good. And he said, this is just an emotional moment, and you'll feel different tomorrow. Now, your pastors, again, would never do that. But, but it, so that was horrible for me. 
I mean, I didn't have anybody else to reach out to, um, to, to try to say, what is, what is the answer? So I actually went on through um, high school and college. And after college, I, I was very naive, but I was sincere in this. I thought, well, maybe the way that you figure out the Word of God is to go where preachers learn about the Word, to seminary. I really thought that that was logical. <laughs> now, what I did not know is there's a big difference, and I know that y'all know this, but I did not at the time, that there's a big, big difference in, in even seminaries. That's embarrassing to say for us as believers, but it's true. There's a difference in, in very conservative and Bible-based evangelistic um, seminaries as well as there can be very liberal theological seminaries. I didn't know that. And I did not know that there's a very liberal school, I'm sure more than that now, but in Atlanta. And that was the closest to me. So I applied, you know, again, just ignorantly in a way, and, and was accepted. So I'm telling you this part because it plays in later to the story. I was in a carpool, and you probably have this here around the Columbus area. You know, when you've got student pastors, young folks that are coming in, people came from all over the country to go and study in Atlanta. So they would be in a small community church like mine, my little church that could not afford full-time salary. And so uh, there were many of those in our county and the county next to us. So there was a place that four of these um, men that were students gathered together to be in a carpool to ride into Atlanta every day to seminary. So I made the fifth day in that carpool. I got in the car. They asked me why I was going to school, and I said, I'm just hungry. I just need something more. And so three of those men, three of the student pastors said this. They said, Joy, we are like you. And on Sunday morning, we go to our little churches, and we stand in the pulpit, and we preach about peace, but we just believe you have to wait until you die to get it. Now, isn't that depressing? But, but, that, but, but now, that, yeah. I'm jumping ahead. Okay, but one guy, one of them said, Joy, I'm like you. Now, the other guys were too. They were great guys. So my buddy and I began to be searchers together. Now, we were real skeptics. I said, you're not going to pull the wool over my eyes. I really want to believe. So in the carpool, we would say, okay, Brother David, you're going to be in an Old Testament class today. You ask this question. Mr. Richard, you're going to be in, in something on apologetics. You ask this today. At the end of the day, we would come back and we'd have another hour in the car saying, what did you learn? Because we really were curious. But this is the truth, and this is not what I'm standing here to say. But I'm just saying this for you to please pray for every denomination and their seminaries. Because I literally was in a class in that, in that very prestigious school that, that had an atheist professor. An atheist. And the class, even the liberal people in that class said, how can that be? We asked him. He did not blink. He was not ashamed. He said, oh, yeah. You know, he would read from the book, uh, the, the epistles to Paul, and he would read in the Greek New Testament, the Greek, the original. He would be reading. But he said, well, I believe Paul was a person, you know, historically, and that he lived, but I do not believe in God. And we said, how in the world could you be in this school? And he said, oh, it's easy, two reasons. <laughs> he said, it's real simple for me. Number one, and he cursed. He said, this is a very prestigious school, and I make a blank of a lot of money. And number two, he said, I have tenure. I've taught here for years, so they can't get rid of me. That's, then, then I understood why that student pastor at my little church had responded the way he had those years before. Because he didn't, he, he really meant that, saying, this is just emotional, you know, maybe it'll be better. But he, he didn't have the answer. So, but during that time, I had just been in school maybe five or six weeks. It was the beginning of the semester, so really not even to midterm time yet. And at night, I was playing softball. 
And, um, and I was on a women's softball team, and that year we had won everything. We had not lost at all. And so this was big. It was the championship game, because I have to tell you what I did. Otherwise, it makes me look really stupid. <laughs> but, but you know baseball, because you're Braves fans or some other team fan, right? And so, um, so, but this was like the World Series for us. I mean, this was massive. It was like the, you know, the seventh game of the World Series. All right, so it is the bottom of the ninth inning, and my team is up by one run. Okay, bottom of the night, and we have two outs on the other team. Y'all with me? So we need one more out to win everything, right? Yeah, you, you got it? Okay, but here's the complication. There's a runner not only on third base, but there's a runner on second too. So there's runners on second and third. We have two outs, so we just need one more out. But the problem is if anything gets to that infield, if anything hits the ground, you know that the runners are going to be going by the time the ball is thrown across the plate. And so we're going to lose. If we can get them out, we win. If not, we lose. So that's where it was. So in the field, of course, we're hoping for the easy out, hoping she'll, you know, strike out or, um, or hit a dribble into the infield and throw them out at first or, you know, or uh, a pop fly and that's easy and then we're out of the game and we win. But the worst thing that could happen to my team happened. The ball's thrown, she swings, and for them it was just beautiful. I mean, it was a pretty hit, just a, a bullet, just line drive, just so fast and really pretty, again, for them, <laughs> headed into the ground. So I ran as hard as I could. I didn't think I had a chance for the ball, but, you know, it's the end, it's all over. The other team is cheering, yay, they think they've won. So I ran and dove for the ball, and I, I'm right-handed, so my gloves in my left hand, I landed on my chest, stomach, legs, you know, just like sliding into first on the front of my body. And guess what? <laughs> the good news is I caught the ball. And we won. It was really big. Like it was, it was, my glove is there and it was just like an ice cream cone, just barely hanging out, but it was off the ground. And so we won. It was a catch. But the bad news is that when I hit the ground, just, I mean, from that second, that moment for the next 18 months, nothing changed in my body. I hit the ground and it ripped everything away from the bone in my back and I was just instantly paralyzed. Just a real fluky accident that doctors nowhere can figure out why or how it happened that way. But, but um, I couldn't move. So I went to all the um, orthopedic uh, specialists and surgeons all over, uh, not just this area, the, the southeast, and even beyond. You know, month after month, different places, they would refer me, hoping that somebody could help me. But the bottom line is, they said, there's nothing we can do. Uh, medical science cannot help you. You will never be able to walk again. You'll never be able to have babies. On the inside of my body, my organs were in wrong different places. And, um, and so it was a, just a hard time. <laughs> I had to just lay on the floor. And again, it was a small, really four-room little farmhouse that I grew up in. So I laid on the floor, and my mama made a pallet, and somebody had to stay with me all the time. Um, to, I say to feed me, it really wasn't to feed me because they would put a straw across to kind of put nourishment in. And then when I needed to go to the bathroom, of course, I couldn't move. And so they'd have to put a bedpan under me. Somebody had to stay all the time. I think the little ears are gone. I want to be careful because I don't want to offend anybody. But during all that time, I never had a period because, you know, again, my uterus, ovaries, everything's in different places. And, um, and in a way, you know, girls, you'd say, hey, well, that's kind of a blessing, you know, because <laughs> it's already nasty enough with a bedpan, and that would have made it even, even worse. But that just meant that there was no way for babies ever in the future. 
Um, so it was just really a hard time physically. But I want to tell you the worst part was what was happening spiritually. Because remember, my heart's not taken care of yet. And I remember laying there and thinking, I don't know how I'll ever be able to get up physically and go find somebody that can help me spiritually. That was the hard part. But I want to tell you, guess what Jesus did? He's so, so faithful. And about a year in, about a year after I had gotten hurt, in my little country church, for the first time in my life, preachers changed, you know, but for the first time in my life, instead of a student pastor going to that seminary, guess what? We got an older retired pastor. And he was much older than me. He could have been my grandpa. But, but he came because, again, he did not need, you know, the full-time salary. And so he was living a few miles away from that little church. And so he and his wife were so faithful, and they were going to see all the shut-ins and the people in the hospitals, and then they came um, to see me. And, and I remember when they walked through the door. I mean, they looked like plain people like us, just dressed normally. But I didn't know what to call it at the time, Brother David. But I, now I know it was like the Shekinah glory all over this precious couple. Because they were madly in love with Jesus. And, um, um, you know, they came and said, well, what had happened? Every, people had told them. So he looked down at me and said, well, how are you doing, girl? And I said, I'm miserable. And this sweet, sweet old man, I said the words, I'm miserable. And this big smile comes on his face. He looks down at me and says, oh, that's good. And I thought, bless his heart. You know, I mean, he's kind of going senile. <laughs> like, like he didn't get it. Or I thought, well, maybe he's hard of hearing. You know, so I kind of yelled back up. I said, no, sir, did you hear me? I said, I'm miserable. And he said, oh, honey, that's good. Because Matthew 5, 6, Jesus said, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And he said, I know that you're hungry and Jesus can fill you. And he said, and Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And over in Hebrews, then it says, without holiness, no man will see the Lord. And he said, and the whole bottom line is that Jesus says that if you are searching for him with all your heart, you'll find him. He said, all those scriptures together. I thought, okay, well, that's good. I said, great. I said, how does that happen? He, big smile again. He said, oh, it's easy. He, he said, it's very easy. He said, you just have to surrender everything to Jesus. Now, I, I don't know about the Baptist hymnal, and I, don't, I really don't know about the, the bigger or newer in big churches Methodist hymnal, but I do know that in the old little hymnal that we had, the Cokesbury hymnal, it was a little brown hymn book, and I could play a little piano. You know, I even, I, even though I was very young, played, you know, for church because we didn't have other, other uh, folks that uh, could play. But I can tell you, I knew in my brain, it is page 148 in that hymnal. I surrender all. Because it seems like every Sunday, you know, or a lot of them, the, the song leader would say, let's turn to page 148. It was usually I surrender all or just as I am, as, a, as an invitation surrender kind of hymn. So when he said that, you just got to give Jesus everything. But I said, I've done that. Because I honestly thought that's what happened when I was 12 years old. But, but my preacher knew better than that. And he began to so sweetly and faithfully come day after day to try to teach me and then to disciple me. As I know that Brother Howell has done for many people and Brother Merritt does for many of you now. I, I know that that happens here. But it did not happen to me before. And that man came and he said, Joy, let me just tell you. He started off that day. And he said, it, this was totally revelation to me. I had never seen this before. He said, the Bible talks about two kinds of sin. 
He said the S-I-N-S, when you see the word sins, plural, sins, plural, that's every time you're looking at it, you're going to find that it's talking about salvation, getting saved and converted. He said, and those are the outward actions of sin, the things we do, lying, cheating, stealing, outwardly do something, violate the law of God, a known law of God. He said, so, so that's what you ask Jesus to forgive you for. And he does, and he saves us, praise God. That, that's what matters. He said, but what the other kind of sin and what you're dealing with is the sin, S-I-N, singular, the sin of your heart. He said, when you see that word in the Bible, it's talking about carnality. He's talking about your carnal heart. Well, I've read that word before, but I didn't really understand that. He said, it's that ego, that pride in your heart, that selfishness in your heart that causes you to want to do the outward actions of sin. That's that unforgiveness kind of thing, you know, that makes you want to hold that grudge. And so, so I thought, well, I, I, I didn't know that before. He said, and the Bible says that that goes away only by sanctification. To use an old King James word, which I love, to use the word sanctify, that God wants to purify your heart. Wash me whiter than so. We sing that, don't we, all the time. But it comes out of Psalm 51. And he shared that with me. Psalm 51, David had sinned. David, David had known the Lord. But then he says, created me a clean heart. There's another praise song that we sing, a chorus that we like to sing. But, and it's, that's where wash me whiter than snow is. But David said in 51, he said, in, in, in sin, my mother conceived me. So you, he said, that, you're born with that original sin. That's what carnality is. You're born with it because of the fall way back with Adam and Eve. You're born with that. And so he said, you didn't do anything to get that. That's, that's that sin principle in your heart. But he said, that, that'll go not away at all until you surrender everything to Jesus. Because he said, if it's like you have, this is your heart. And he said, you know, even if you're not doing the outward actions of sin. Remember how that preacher said that to me? Oh, you're good. You know, you're not doing outward acts of sin. But that sin principle was in my heart. And he said, when you ask Jesus, when you give him everything, he said, when you want him more than you want anything on the planet, he'll wash that away. And then your heart is empty so you can be filled with who he is. And that's the fruit of the Spirit. We read in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. We're all, we'd be filled with that um, fruit. And then God does give different gifts, but we're talking different things. I'm talking about the fruit. I'd heard, see, the charismatic movement was kind of, you know, going pretty big and strong then. And I'd even had friends, I knew people that, you know, even at a church would say, hey, let's go over here. They're going to teach us, you know, maybe how to speak in tongues or some different, different things. And I shouldn't have even used that as an example because that's just one that people use a lot. But there are many other different gifts. And I remember I wasn't smart, but I had enough sense then to know. I thought, if God wants to give it to somebody, that is beautiful and wonderful, whatever he, how he wants to use us. But I had enough sense to know that even some of those people, friends of mine, that would come back and say, oh, now I'm doing this and those things, I thought, their hearts are still like mine. It was during that searching time for me. I thought, I thought we're still looking for the same thing. So when my preacher began to explain to me about what the fruit of the Spirit is and what it really means, he said some different denominations use different terms. Some say entirely sanctified. Some say being filled with the Holy Spirit or baptized in the Spirit or to make Him Lord of our life. We say that, don't we? We even pray, Lord Jesus. But the truth is, until we're completely His, I mean all the way, I don't mean just saved, I mean give everything to Him, then he's not really Lord. And, and, and so, so I began to understand what those terms uh, uh, were. But he so carefully took me all throughout the word. He said, Joy, God begins over here in Leviticus 11, and he goes all the way through. He quotes again in Peter. But all throughout the word, he says, I'm a holy God, and I want you to be a holy people. And he said, that's what the word holiness really means. 
is to have a clean, pure heart. And then God empowers you for ministry. He gives you his power. There's anointing there. When it is from God, when it's selfless, when you're selfless, and you know, we talk a lot about hiding behind the cross. That's what that really, really means is being completely his. Then he'll empower you. And, you know, I'm telling you, I can tell you in my little songbook or hymn book, it was page six, is holy, holy, holy. We sang it lots of Sunday mornings. Lord God Almighty, merciful and mighty, you know the song. And we sing it a lot in a lot of our praise choruses now. So I sang about it, but I didn't understand what that was. And he said, let me give you one more example. And this was really helpful to me. Again, I'm just slow. I had just not seen this before. But he said, look at the disciples. The disciples. Now, in Sunday school, growing up, you know, the question would be asked by the teacher, what is a disciple? And the answer is a follower of Jesus is the simple answer, which is true. But when we look at the 12 disciples, I thought, well, I want to be like a disciple because they're the ones that got to be with Jesus all the time. But my pastor said, Joy, look at the disciples before Pentecost When you see them in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when Jesus is physically with them, and then look at them after Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit came, and Jesus had gone back to heaven. He said, they're radically different men. And I I said, help me. Because again, I said, prove it to me. I want to believe it. So let me just give you just a few, few examples. He said, they were actually very selfish men. And see, I I didn't see these things before. Just a few. He said, oh, they were looking out for number one. Um, remember when Jesus was talking about coming into his kingdom, the disciples, two of them first said, hey, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, I want to be standing right there on your right side. And the other one said, I want to be right on your left. Like I want to be the big dog that's with Jesus, you know, right here. And I thought it was just those two. But if you read the next verse, it says the other 10 were very angry and jealous because the other two guys had jumped in first to say, I want to be the big dog. I want to be with, with the big dog, with, with Jesus. So they, they wanted to be important and be seen in front of people. They were over-impressed with money. Remember, remember when the rich young ruler came and said, What do I need for eternal life? And Jesus explained, You got to be born again. And the Bible says he went away sad because, you know, he didn't want to give up everything. And the disciples, the Bible says, got mad. They said, Jesus, are you nuts? Because that guy's got a lot of money and we could use that for all of our ministries that we're doing. Then remember when the woman took the alabaster box and and broke it, and that was really, really expensive, and, and took her hair and anointed Jesus, got the oil and anointed it. And the Bible says, are you crazy? That is so worth so much money, and, um, and we, could, we could sell that and make a lot from it. That really mattered to them. They, they, were, not, um, they, they were not spiritually discerning in, when they're in the Gospels. People would be brought to Jesus, and they, would, they wouldn't understand the importance of that. that. People would be brought that were demon-possessed or that something was wrong with them physically. And, and Jesus would say things like, this goes out by nothing but fasting and prayer. You know, the disciples did not have that power, but Jesus did and would touch and just heal them. Um, uh, the, the little children would be brought, and the disciples would say, oh, he doesn't have time for you. That's not important. But Jesus said, let the children come to me. You know, uh, they said, oh, we'll be with you to the end, Jesus. You know, we're, we're going all the way. And then they were all looking out for themselves, tucking their tails and running and hiding. Peter had three opportunities to make it up, and he still blew it. You know, and remember right there, right before the garden, before he's about to be killed the next day, he said, can you just pray with me an hour? But they were looking out for themselves, so they go to sleep. You know, just thinking, oh, we just need to take care of ourselves. So those are just a few things before, before Pentecost. 
But after, when Jesus went back to heaven and the Holy Spirit fell and came all over them, because the, Jesus said that for them, you wait right here in Jerusalem. You tarry. You be seeking me with everything that you have. In Luke 24, he says that. And then over in Acts 1, he said, just before he went back to heaven, he said, you'll be filled with power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Then you'll be my witnesses in Ju Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, which you're being an Acts 1-8 church right here at Edgewood. So thank you for that. But anyway, so Jesus said that would happen. And then after Pentecost, Look at those same guys. They're different. They're totally different. They're, they're not looking out for number one. The Bible says that James, another James, becomes the head of the church. And Peter goes and does other things. It begins in chapter 2 right there after Pentecost. They pull, they're not impressed with money. They pull all their money together. And the Bible clearly throughout the book of Acts talks about how they're helping other people um, and, and being in community. They're not lacking spiritual power. Right here in Acts 3, you see one of the beginning places where they say, hey, we don't have any money, but what we do have we'll give you. It's because of Jesus. So in Jesus' name, rise and walk. The, that happens all throughout Acts. And then even the Bible says that their shadows can fall on the people and that they would be healed or delivered. And they're not tucking their tails and running. They're all willing to die for him, and they did in the end. What made the difference? My preacher kept saying, Joy, look at this. And I saw it. For the first time I began to see it, I thought, they were human people like me. And obviously they were walking with Jesus. They were following him. So we would say they're Christians. They'd, ask, they'd been saved. They'd you know, probably joined the church, you know, in a way. But my preacher said this. He said, usually, usually we have to walk with Jesus for a while. And be in Sunday school, maybe be discipled before we really see the need deep in our heart. And that's what had happened to me. And so here was the turning day for me. Preacher said, he comes in one day. He said, Joy... I'm just going to tell you. I'll tell you what your problem is. <laughs> he said, you're just double-minded. And I didn't know what that meant. But I knew that it, wasn't, it didn't sound good. Like it sounded like a negative, <laughs> not a compliment, you know, a negative thing. And he's right. Because over in James, it says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, up and down, just wishy-washy. That's exactly where I was. Exactly where I was. He said, you've got just enough of Jesus to make you miserable. <laughs> thought, what does that mean? He said, here it is. You've got one foot over here. You're saved. You ask Jesus in your heart, praise God. So you got one foot with Jesus, but you still got one foot over here in the world. And God says, you cannot love the world and love him. And he said, so that's why it's painful. You're straddling that fence. And you know, I'm a farm girl, remember? So I understand straddling fences. How many of you know what barbed wire is? Even if you live in the city here in Columbus, if you grew up on a farm or you've seen a farm, <laughs> you've seen strands of barbed wire. And when you're trying to climb through that fence to go get the cows or whatever you're trying to get to on the other side of that fence, if that metal, that little tin stuff, the sharp stuff grabs your leg and you start gushing blood everywhere, <laughs> you don't want to move because it's going to rip your skin apart. And that's where I was. And that was the day that I knew. I began to remember what I'd said to that preacher those months before. And I thought, I lied to him. <laughs> When I said I'd surrendered everything because it wasn't true. And I, I thought that day, you know, maybe I've given Jesus 96 or 7 or 8%. But I kept back. And everybody thought, oh, Joy's a great Christian girl. But I kept back 1 or 2%, you know, just for me. Nobody else knew that. On the outside, everything was great. But I had not given him everything. And there came that moment. And I can tell you when it was because it's a glory day for me. It was July the 16th that I just said, Jesus, I really do give you everything. I couldn't move physically. But I said, it's all your, I'm everything. I don't even know what that means. I don't have anything physically, but I want you to have all my heart. And I want to tell y'all, laying on that little floor, glory came down and God radically changed my heart. Now, I, could, I was bouncing around in my heart, but I couldn't move physically. 
But, but suddenly those people that maybe I'd held a grudge against, it's like I loved them. I thought, this is insane. This is not possible. It is not possible, humanly speaking. It's supernatural that I wanted them to have more of Jesus than me. That's not human. That's not natural for us. And so, and, and the deep peace that was there and the joy. I mean, God had really changed my heart. So, I got to hurry. Exactly two weeks later, near my house, there was a little camp meeting. Does you still have camp meetings anywhere around here? Um, if not, maybe you know what they are. But it's like a revival meeting, but you're outdoors. It's almost like when the youth go to camp, but, but here, you know, it's all the grown-ups, everybody is there. So... The thing that mattered for me is my mom and daddy brought the newspaper because I, my family always went, but obviously I couldn't go. But, but it always had the picture of, you know, like when you're going to have revival, you're advertising the, I don't know, sorry what your paper is, but, you know, who the, the evangelist is going to be and, and who the song leader is going to be, what's going to happen. So there was two pictures. One was of a big picture of the evangelist, and he was a man from South Georgia named Tom Barrett, I could say, because maybe some of you know him, but I didn't know him, um, never heard of him, but he was going to be the evangelist. But the other picture, a smaller photo, was of guess who? It was my buddy. It was my guy, my friend from that carpool a couple of years before, my, my searching friend together. And so he was going to be the youth director for the week. So I said, I've got to get to my friend and his wife and tell them about holiness and what God has done in my heart and that it's real. It's not scary. It's a wonderful thing and what being filled with the Holy Spirit really means. And so, and so they took me that day. It was the only day I went anywhere except to doctors and all that time. They picked me up and laid me in the back seat of the car and drove to where the camp meeting was and put me down on the little cement porch. It was just a tiny slab of cement, and it was a little two-room block building where the preachers were going to stay for the week. Just They're camping there. It just has a toilet and a bed, you know, just real simple for them. So it was a little porch area. So I'm laying there and sharing with my friends what the Lord has done. And then a car pulls up because people are coming in. You could hear people all around. Kids are bringing sleeping bags and stuff for the week. And then the car pulls right up close to where we are. And it ha it's the, the man who's going to be the evangelist. So he gets out and they shake hands and say, oh, I'm so glad I'm going to be working together with you this week. Glad to meet you, that kind of stuff. And then the, the man looks down at me because he realized I didn't move. And he said, you're not laying there for the fun of it, are you? Yeah, it's funny now. At the time, I thought, is he crazy? <laughs> you know, like, hello. But, but in fairness, he did not see them bring me. I mean, he knew nothing at that point. He just knew that I'm laying there. So then um, my friend explained what had happened before I could say anything. And so I thought then that this man would be like other people, even church folks, my neighbors and friends, who would come see me, you know, during that time, and maybe they might have brought something to eat. But usually, you know, they'd come and say, how you doing? And as they would go out the door, they'd say, you know, oh, I'm so sorry this has happened to you, because they didn't know what to do with it. And as they would walk out, usually sometimes, sometimes, people would stick their head back in and say, bye, Joy, we'll, we'll come back. Um, we'll be praying for you. And I don't doubt that they didn't pray. I'm not saying that, but... I, I don't remember anybody ever praying for me right then because it seemed so hopeless. I understand now why, why they didn't because there was no hope medically. So I thought the man would say something like that, but do you know what he said? He looked down and he said, well, have you ever asked God to heal you? And then I thought, oh, oh man, maybe this guy's kind of a quack. I mean, I don't know. You know, I didn't know him yet. I knew nothing. Um, but before I could respond to that, he dispelled what I was thinking. He said, honey, I do not understand healing. He said, I do not know why some people are healed and some are not. He said, and I don't know why we come to church and we pray for somebody to be healed and then maybe they die. 
He said, I do not understand that. But I just know that everywhere I can find in the word that they brought people to Jesus and asked them to heal them, he did. And he said, I know the word says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I'm going to tell you, because of two weeks before that, now the word was not gray. It was none of that stuff. It was black and white and all the word of God. And I knew that what he was saying was true there. He said, I just know that over in James, it says, call on the elders and to pray. And he said, I'm, James 5, he said, I'm just willing to ask for you. So I know my time's up, so i got to hurry. But I, I said, well, yes, sir, I want you to pray. I'm just telling you, I'm confessing right now. I had no expectations. I was in massive pain all the time. It hurt all the time. They never could give me anything to stop the pain. So, so I didn't expect anything. He said, before I pray, I want to ask you one question. He was so humble, quiet, spoken. Um, he, he said, Matthew 18, 19, Jesus is talking. And Jesus said, if two of you agree on earth touching anything, it will be done of my Father that's in heaven. So before I pray, I want to know what you can agree with me for. He said, could you agree with me that God could heal you in six months? I said, yes, sir. But the people I know, even church folks, would not give God the credit for that. They would think in six months, that's a long time, that I just gradually got better or I had some special surgery. And I always stop here, I time out and say, I believe that the way God normally heals is gradual. And I believe he uses doctors. I believe he gives them the brains to diagnose and treat and the chemical people to put the chemicals together to make medicine to take Advil or Tylenol or chemotherapy or whatever. I, I believe that's God's normal way. I believe that. But I said, but the people would not give God the, the glory for that. And I said, after what the Lord's done in my heart, I don't want anybody patting me or any doctor or nurse, any medical, any human person and saying, oh, aren't they great? No, they're not great. Only God is great. Remember we sang, how great is our God? That's true. He's the one that's great. And so, so I, I said, uh, no. So then he said, um, okay, let me ask you one more. He said, could you agree with me that God could heal you right now? And I said, no, sir. And I began to cry. And I said, I want to believe that so badly, but I'll never be able to sit in a chair to, and eat a meal with my family. I'm a runner. I said, I'll never be able to run down the road again. I said, as a little girl, you dream of walking down the aisle and getting married, don't you, girls? Boys do, too. I said, I'll never get to do that. I said, you know, I think about when I was little playing with a baby doll, thinking about having babies. I'll never get to do that. I was just a wreck. And then he was very wise. He waited, and he said, let me ask you one more question. And this was from the Lord. He said, before two weeks ago, could you ever have imagined the love, joy, and peace that God put in your heart? When he really healed your heart, he cured your heart, he filled your heart with him instead of your selfishness. And I said, oh, no, sir. I mean, everything changed for me then. I thought, I never knew you could really know him and really love him. I mean, then everything is different for me. So, and I did say this. I said, if God could do that, he could do anything. Because for me, that was bigger than any of the big miracles in the Bible, like the parting of the Red Sea. I mean, the big ones that we learn about. Because I knew how dirty my heart was. And I had tried for 12 years to be good enough and to make it good enough. So, he just began to pray. He didn't ask permission he just talked real softly. Brother David reminds me of him, just very, um, his demeanor was just so loving and kind. And I don't know what the man said. I don't know the words, but somewhere in the prayer, he said, Father, because of Matthew 18, 19, I agree with joy that it's done. I heard those words. I didn't hear anything else after that. I don't know what he said after that. I guess in the end, he said, in Jesus' name, amen, or something at the end of the prayer. But I knew that when he said those words, it's done, that just suddenly I didn't feel anything anymore. And... I can't describe that except it was just a numb kind of feeling. And I really thought that I was just asleep and dreaming. It was so wonderful. I remember thinking, I don't want to move because it, it, it had been the first relief I'd had in a year and a half. 
But when he did finish praying, I, the first things that I heard him say, he said, well, did anything happen? And I said, I don't know. And then he said, well, can you move anything? And so when he said that, I jumped up. And so I did jumping jacks and I ran in place and I did a back bend. I mean, I, it was like a little gymnastics route. Yes, somebody could clap for Jesus. That's a wonderful thing. Yay. The Lord healed me. I mean, instantly, like the man in Acts chapter 3, it really is a miracle. I mean, he just healed me. I mean, I could do anything. The next morning, I ran two miles. The next Saturday, I went to Coweta County, Noonan, Georgia, up above here. What would this be? Northeast from here? Y'all know where that is. And I ran in a 10K race. That's 6.2 miles. I ran. And guess what? I was healed on a Saturday night. On Monday morning, so I don't know how many hours that is, 36 or 30 or something like that. Guess what, girls? I started my period again. <laughs> Yippee! <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, it meant nothing to me at the time, but I'm so thankful. Because now, then, later I met my husband, and he's given us two precious babies that medically are not supposed to be here. i gotta, I got to be finished. Um, the Lord really used that. I go to the doctors to thank them, but to testify, because I knew they thought I was crazy, and they did. And they said, we want to believe you, but we don't. So they said, we want you to go have all these scans and x-rays and tests all over the city, all over Atlanta at the time. And, um, and at the end of the day, the older gentleman that was about to retire brought in seven interns or in their residency saying, I want these guys to see this early in their practice. He said, you know, I've been, and he, he apologized. Tears were coming down his face. It was so precious, saying, I want you to forgive me. I said, for what? He said, because I've been a member of First Baptist all my life. He said, I, I said I believed what the Word says, but this is not medically possible, and I did not believe you. And I need these guys to see it early in their practice that what we could not do, only God could do. So it's a big praise. A lot of people got saved because of the healing. And I'm so thankful Jesus healed me because, because I get to stand here. I wouldn't know any of you. I couldn't stand here. I'm so thankful for that. But I just want to end with this. The most important thing that God did is not what he did physically. The most important thing is what he did in my heart. Because not all of us have something physically wrong with us, although some do. And we want to pray for that later after the service or at the end of this service. Because um, I just think, what if that sweet man had not been willing just to ask God? You know, and then look what Jesus did. But, but the most important thing is my heart. And that's what all of us, according to the word, all of us have a heart like mine. You know, I know most of you are believers. Praise God for that. And maybe I just think there's probably some here today that may be like me saying, Hey, Joy, you know, you know maybe I have given him 95 or 6%, but I'm held back a little. Or, or, uh, or, or maybe I've been a Christian a long time, but I haven't really understood that. I'm ending totally with this. Romans 7, this is something I used to, when I was in youth group or even as a young adult, Romans 7 used to give me comfort because, you know, Paul is saying, oh, I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I ought to do. And so I just kind of lived in that and thought, well, this is just the normal Christian life. No, it's not. Look at Romans 8 at the beginning. He says, no, there's therefore now no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus, who are walking in the Spirit. And that's what God wants to do for all of us. So my challenge, my prayer, my encouragement for all of us is to not walk out any of these doors the way that we came in today and for us to surrender everything. It may be the first time. It also could be a second, tenth time. But to say, Jesus, fresh and new, I'm asking you to fill me with who you are so that then that's what y'all are doing, love indeed, so you can go out with agape love, true selfless love, indeed, not just here in this community but beyond. I need to stop. Pastor David's going to come and and give invitation. It's joy. And, um, you know what? Um, God doesn't love joy any more than he loves you. And um, God knows everything about you just like he knows everything about joy. 
And uh, God knows what your particular need is right now. What God wants, son of man, give me your heart. So we're going to ask uh, Brother Andy to lead us in an invitational hymn. And uh, we open our altars to you. If you want to just come forth and uh, pray some, or if you want to come and unite with this church, or if you want to come and say, I've just met the Lord, and I want to confess him before men as he has told us to do, it doesn't matter what. You feel led to come. You come. And for those who do not feel that way, just in your heart, talk to God about yourself and ask him to move as only he knows best. So, Brother Andy, let's, let's sing it.